Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White and Mike Kresnick of Cormdale Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today we're talking about elite evangelicals? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> Who Question are they? Mark? Is that even a thing? Yeah, we're, we're going to tackle that topic. But first, some elite evangelicals need to bring us some snacks. <laughs> we're going to have to bring our own, apparently. Dusty's feeling the lack of snacks. I'm kind of hungry. There's no snacks. Well, friends. What happened? I thought you liked us, loved us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Actually, you know what your happened? Your Wednesday conversation. You were off Your for Wednesday a highlight of like, your day. They used to just bring us snacks for you. Yeah, then you that's what we realized. Sorry. Yep. So, uh, snacks are welcome. Mike, sorry. I interrupted you. I was not saying a word. You were, you were making noises into your microphone. <laughs> I was going to say something to the effect of, like, we took a month off. No, that's true. Yeah, we did. That off. is true. We just we need to get back in the rhythm and habit. The field guide for the hotcakes is still laying here, just taunting us. <laughs> yeah, so that, we of, do need to throw that away. Snacks gone we long past. I mean, if you live in Seattle near hotcakes. What else did I say I was going to talk about at the beginning of this podcast? I know we want to talk about Mike. What else? There was something else. Oh, The Chosen. The Chosen. Oh, The Chosen. Bob, you're watching chosen. The Chosen. What Bob I is want, watching? Yeah, because we did an episode a few weeks ago or a month ago on Bethany asked us like, what are you watching? And then literally the next day I started watching the chosen, which I think was a Travis bear. I think Travis Barrett said, you yeah, should watch this. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. I'm not going to watch it. And then I did <laughs> guys. It's really good. It is Define Really good. Well, mm. um, for you to say something is really good. It yeah. must be really good. Yeah. But he's not exactly the guy you go to for TV recommendations <laughs> though. Right. Or movie recommendations. But he's highly critical of what he watches. Wow. That's true. <laughs> End of true. most things. Right. Especially churchy stuff. Well, here's what I love about it. Okay. I, it's the, the imaginative nature. I think, it, I think it fosters Christian imagination. Meaning what it's doing really powerfully is just sort of imagining all the cracks in the story. Mm-hmm. Right? Like what, what might have happened in between the events we read about in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so I just think what the producers of that show have done that's really intriguing is just sort of woven a narrative that's like, oh, I never thought about that possibility. But what if that was part of the story? So, you know, they make Nicodemus a really central character. Mm. And you're sort of like, I just see Nicodemus as the guy who shows up in John 3 and has a conversation about being born again. But what if he's like actually really integral and his sort of like his story's interwoven with the story of the disciples calling? That's really fascinating to think about. And even the story, you know, the the chosen sort of imagines Peter and Andrew as these fishermen who are in debt to the empire and part of their pressure they're feeling in life is their need to pay off debt, you know? Mm-hmm. So like interfaces their story with Matthew's story as a tax collector. It's just really powerful. I was just like, man, that's fascinating. So I've, I'm watching it and going like, man, this makes me like love the Bible even more and, mm. f- and feel like, man, I'm not very good as a preacher because I never imagined how these stories might intersect with each other. <laughs> the first time I saw the, the scene where he calls Peter, man, I was in tears. Yeah. Such a powerful scene, and it has this ability to be moving without being sentimental. Yes, exactly. And that is not easy for Christians to do. It's not. Christians have have a bad history of being just sentimental and kitschy, mm. and I do feel I feel like this is more moving in the in the way you want good art to be, where it's like the characters, the, the actors do a pretty good job, and the way the story is told does have some of those moments where it's like, man, that's compelling. You know, mm. I watched the woman at the well scene yesterday, where mm. he, you know, I'm just like, gosh, that's 
that's amazing what they did with that scene. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm high on the chosen right now. All right. Now I kind of want to watch it. I know. I kind of want to as well. And if you have, Hey, you should, you should watch it. Um, it's I, I do free, think, right? Like you don't I have think to so, yeah. I don't pay I don't, for any stream. I don't know what I was watching it on. I was watching it on some <laughs> streaming service that shows up at my house. You still I got Chris's password. Yeah, probably <laughs> using Chris's Netflix password or something. Uh, anyways, so watch it. It's, I think it's the kind of thing that, that just your average Bible loving Christ loving Christian would be like, Hey, this is actually really powerful. It's, it's, it nurtures the imagination in a healthy way. And I think if you have kids, man, this is the kind of imaginative stuff you want to sow into their lives. Just like, Hey, let's think about how much more interesting the story of the Bible is than just what's told to us. What's told to us are very interesting snapshots, but there's also a whole narrative underneath that of these people's lives and their stories and all the intersections that are happening in sort of the first century. So um, I've really found it powerful. And I think some of the actors are really good. Mary Magdalene is a great actor. The the Roman centurion is a great, there's just some people that are just like, yeah, that guy makes me want to hate. Like I want to punch that Roman guy in the face. Every time he's on the screen, he's like, you are just a louse. And that's good. When you have an actor that's just like, I hate that person. That's a good villain. That's good scripting. Good casting for your villain. You know, is a louse a single lice? Yes. Oh, okay. One single one lice. lice. Yeah. Okay. Not no, lices. <laughs> Le- lices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One louse. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I was just well, over here nodding, going, "Oh yeah." <laughs> that sounds like a terrible person. <laughs> I would hate to be that guy. <laughs> okay, we want to engage this article Carl Truman wrote in November and a few responses to it. So this is a little bit of an old debate now because it's been going on uh, for a few months. But Carl Truman wrote a piece in First Things, November 2021 on the failure of evangelical elites. And Carl Truman can be a little bit of a pot stirrer, and he's a little cranky sometimes. But I also like him because he has his finger on cultural issues in a very intelligent way. So though I might not always agree with what he sees, he's seeing something, and he does a pretty good job framing it and naming it. So what the case he is making in this article is that evangelicals have bought into a vision of cultural influence that sort of envisions that if we can just sort of um, uh, win over elite sections of society or be well represented among elite sections of societies, the people who read the New York Times, people who graduate from high level academic institutions, if we can sort of make the best case possible in those venues, that that helps the cause of the gospel. And I think this, this, is a, this has a long history in America and beyond America, just that, hey, part of what we want to do is faithfully represent the gospel in public spaces. Um, Truman is going to take issue with that and say, yeah, you guys are stinking at that. You're doing a bad job of that. Now, I don't know that I agree with Truman, but here's what he, here's the case he wants to make. Um, he uses James Davison Hunter's language of faithful presence, which is language we've used a lot. Uh, Hunter makes the case that, hey, part of what Christian influence looks like is just being faithfully present in various spheres of society and doing a good job. So, you know, that, for instance, if you're a professor at a university, you should be a really great professor. You should be faithfully present there for a lifetime, and over time, you will have influence. Um, here's Truman's critique of that in the article. The problem with that approach is that modern intellectual culture has never been engaged in a morally neutral exercise of refining the canons of intellectual inquiry and debate. The leading figures of the Enlightenment and their intellectual descendants were engaged with varying degrees of conscious intention in an attack on the moral significance of Orthodox Christianity. Failure to conform to new orthodoxies on race, morality, 
sexual orientation, and gender identity is the main reason Orthodox Christianity is despised today. I think that's his central contention. What he wants to say is, hey, it's not that we lack intellectual respectability and we need more of that. It's that people disagree with our moral vision of the world. And no matter how intellectually respectable you are, if you're contrary to the prevailing orthodoxy on race, morality, sexual orientation, or gender identity, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong team. And no one cares what, how, how credible you are in every other area. Now, you can agree or disagree with Truman, but I think that's a provocative thesis because what he's saying is our, our approach should be different. We shouldn't be trying to you know, find common ground with intellectual, respectable elites who are, you know, not favorable to Christianity because it's just not, the common ground isn't there because it's moral common ground, not intellectual common ground that would need to be present. And there's just fundamental disagreement there is yeah. what he's saying. And, and, you know, you would have to say, based on the last few years of what's happened in our culture, that he, he has a valid concern here. I'm yeah. just saying, yeah, there's been a lot of people who have been canceled just because they have the wrong view on gender identity or on sexual orientation or on race or on gender. And so, you know, that's the argument he's making is like, stop trying to be, stop trying to have favor with people who just aren't going to favor Christianity because of its moral vision, not because of its intellectual vision. Um, now here's where he's going to go. Um, he's going to say, so stop. So let's, so we should stop doing that. He says, within Christian circles, the desire to appease religion's cultured despisers has become a powerful force. Like Schleiermacher, those who hold to this vision think that a winning strategy involves standing shoulder to shoulder with the despisers. And now here's the, so so he's saying, if we think the strategy is stand shoulder to shoulder with the culture on as many things as we can, here's where that breaks down. He says, what, what that has led to over the last four years is, here's what you do if that's your vision of cultural influence. You bash Trump and you trash anybody who, who voted for Trump or who, who is Trumpy on anything or who's anti-vax. Anybody who's like got a outside the mainstream view, as long as you sort of bash on those people, the elites will like you. And so that's become kind of a strategy. And it's interesting. Here's the case he's making that I think some other people have picked up on is he says the easiest place to score points with the culture in the last four years has been on race. So all these Christians have written pieces in various media outlets on race. Nobody's talking about abortion. Nobody's talking about sexual ethics. Why not? Because those are places where we're not going to gain any common ground with the culture around us. But the place where we can find some common ground is on race. And that's why evangelicals have talked about race all the time in the last four years. Now, you may agree or disagree that that's why we're talking about it, but Truman is saying it's interesting that that's a place where there seems to be some common ground and not in other areas that also matter to us. And is he saying that's that's the way to stay in the fight yeah. to be an elite? Yeah, that's the way to be respected yeah. in the society is just, you know, yeah. if you sort of critique white supremacy or you think that race is the top, the top shelf issue, you have a lot of people who agree with you on that, and so that's a way to sort of like stay favored in those circles. But as soon as they, as soon as they ask, Oh, Dusty, in addition to the issue of race, what do you think about sexual ethics? Now, you know, now it doesn't matter that you agree on race. You're going to be outed as someone who is backwards on that. And so, um, it's interesting that I think Truman is trying to make a case for what Christian cultural influence should look like. He's saying, stop buying into this idea of faithful presence because it's not 
the right vision of cultural influence. He's, he's kind of a little bit, I don't know that he would say this, but he feels a little bit more Benedict optiony. Like, Hey, let's mm-hmm. just, let's just be who we are. Let's be the church. Let's be, our, let's stop mm-hmm. trying to care about what the elites out there think about our view of the world. Cause it doesn't matter. Um, I'm, I'm curious whether Truman has a point here. Um, and what mission, whether he's raising some important missional questions is kind of our concern. Because as we think about the listeners of this podcast, I don't care whether you read first things and whether you even know who Carl Truman is. I think what I do care about is what's our strategy as we engage with our neighbors and with people in our cities? Um, is it, man, let's try to find common ground on as many things as we can. Or is it, hey, you know what? You're probably going to think I'm a weirdo because I'm a Christian. And guess what? I am a weirdo because I'm a Christian. So I'm going to stop trying to sort of like stand shoulder to shoulder with you on as many things as I can and just say, Hey man, I love Jesus. And that probably makes me a little weird in your eyes, but I, I love you. And you know, I'd like you to love Jesus too. You know, it's a, one is more of a Christ transforming culture to use Niebuhr's categories. Truman is a little more of a Christ against culture. Like let's not, there's no common ground here. It's we're, people are going to have to make a radical choice to step into the Christian community. And that's going to mean step being out of step with the culture around us. Chris. So many thoughts here. So many thoughts Start here. Start with one. So the first thing that comes to mind here is Truman's critique, where I think he's onto something, is this whole idea of faithful presence, which when you look at even when Hunter wrote his book, what is it? It's been ten, about yeah, 10 or 12 years 10 ago. 10 or 12 years ago. We were in a very different place culturally. Agreed. Yeah. We we're still kind of in that postmodern, hey, we have these differences. I'm okay. You're okay. Where, where there wasn't the hostility where now there is a hostility. So I'm just wondering, and, and I've seen several critiques of both Hunter and even Tim, some of the way Tim Keller has done mission about, hey, that worked 15, 20 years ago, but we're in a different cultural moment. And so that understanding of how you engage culture no longer works because the ground has shifted. And so the whole idea of faithful presence, it, it just is a non-starter in many ways because of the very thing. Like if you don't hold the ground on particular sexual ethics, there is no standing shoulder to shoulder with people. So that, that, I think if that is the case, and, and I, th- I think it is in a lot of ways, I don't think that Hunter is necessarily wrong per se, but just that he was speaking to a different cultural moment as far as what missional engagement looks like to where now the ground has shifted and it shifted pretty quickly to maybe we just need to start asking questions. Is Truman onto something in, in some ways? But at the same time, I don't think that the idea of faithful presence is is just something you sort of jettison mm, um, in yeah. a sense of, I, I think we should still desire if we're given those opportunities to stand in particular places. Now we need to be faithful. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Truman has always said, Hey, <laughs> I'm good, good with faithful line. Yeah, presence. Well, he has a line in there that says the faithful there. has to be as important yeah, as the presence. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and he's a hundred percent correct. And I mean, you would think of examples in scripture where you have um, like Daniel or Joseph and mm-hmm put in positions of power and influence in very anti-godly cultures. And hey, it worked out for Joseph. Daniel, it worked out until it didn't. But both of those guys were faithful in in the midst of that. And so there are, I think there are spaces where this still can happen by the grace and providence of God. So I don't think we should just immediately jettison this and think just because someone's standing, you know, in an elite institution that they're somehow, you know, I'm hobnobbing with the culture despisers and I'm bashing Christianity. Uh, but he does, I think he does raise some, some important questions about what it means to engage culture right now. That's my first thought. That's a good thought. I like what you're thinking there. Um, yeah, Dusty. Isn't he also, 
I, I feel like the whole article or the the piecing together here is assuming that the greatest apologetic is still going to be intellectual debate. Yeah, he. I think I think he's reading into people's motives maybe a little bit. I just think he he assumes that anyone who would stand shoulder to shoulder with non-Christians on some issue in our culture and write about it, someone like a Russell Moore or, you know, like a, a Tish Harrison Warren, someone who might write in the New York Times or write a column in the Washington Post or Karen Swallow Priors, people who just, they're, they're trying to just faithfully express things in the public square. Truman seems to imply that anyone who would do that, yeah, is... They're trying to seek intellectual credibility as their sort of starting point, and that's just the wrong place to start. I don't know that I agree with him there. Yeah. Um, I guess to say it another way, Truman seems to be saying the strategy should be just abandon the public square, and I don't ever think that's a good strategy. Yeah, um, create your own institutions. Well, sort of hide your kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think he's – Truman's not a fundamentalist in that sense, but I, I do think he just has a – he seems to have a very negative view of, is there any room for Christians engaging the public square in a way that tries to seek common ground with others? And I just think, well, there better be because we're all raising kids in this world, you know, and yeah. like for the good of the generations behind us, we need to we need to fight for whatever good we can fight for in the public square, regardless of whether someone's going to disagree with me on an issue like gender identity or an issue like the deity of Christ. I still hope they agree with me on, you know, whatever issues we can find common ground on. So I, I don't know. I just think that Truman seems to be appealing for sort of an abandoning of the public square or like a, Hey, who cares? Let's not try to find intellectual common ground. Um, his, it does ha- seem unrealistic to take that approach. Well, he, he has this, let me, let me read you two of his concluding paragraphs or sentences. Those who seek selective solidarity with our cultured despisers, on the woke fixations of the day will find their strategy inherently unstable. We cannot pick and choose moral priorities. The Christian gospel is first and foremost a judgment on this world, not a selective affirmation of it in the service of winning friends and influencing people. I think that's interesting. I, mm-hmm. The Christian gospel is first and foremost a judgment on this world, not a selective affirmation of it. I might I might disagree with him on that, actually, but it's an interesting. I mean, it's a very reformed thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> a very cranky British reformed thing to say. And Jesus did say, right, that you know this world is passing away. Um, yeah. My kingdom is not of this world. So he has a point in certain ways. Um, let me lay two pieces over this, and we can talk about them some more. There were two articles written in in response. To, one of the things I like about First Things is, you know, they print a piece like this. And then the next issue, you get to read some people who write in and say, I disagree with that. So two of the articles, one of them is from Stephen Wolf, who's a research fellow at Princeton University. And his observation is, hey, I wonder if what's actually happening here is the people that Truman calls evangelical elites. That's, by the way, sorry, we didn't explain it. That's Truman's language for people who would seek sort of to stand shoulder to shoulder with the intellectual leaders of our day and try to find common ground with them. I don't know who he means. That's one of your critiques is like, who is an evangelical elite? elite? I think in Truman's Ryan, it's Russell Moore, it's Karen Swallow Pryor, it's Tish Harrison Warren. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, Esau McCauley. It's people who are, are seeking to use their platform to advance intellectual arguments in the public square. I, I, I think that's who he's thinking about. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't name any of those people, but I think that's what he has in mind is just people who, um, and, and for Truman's, I think the critique he has is that the the willingness of those people, like someone like David French, okay, 
who clearly is sort of trying to advance, trying to gain intellectual credibility in the world. I mean, he, he's doing that and I respect him for it, but he's very non-Trumpy. He's very anti-Trumpy. And his quick, the quickness with which he throws anybody who supports Trump under the bus, I think rankles a guy like Carl Truman because he's like, hey, mm-hmm. those, are your, those people go to your church. Like, stop implying that they are terrible people. They might have made a wrong decision in your mind politically, but they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think Truman's contention is when we seek intellectual common ground with non-Christians, it can lead to us despising other Christians, and that's kind of what he sees going on that I think he's trying to name. Now, again, he doesn't name any of those people. It's interesting because what you're saying there is in an effort to create some unity or some common ground, you're actually creating more division right. in the church is right. what, is what, that's, what yeah, I That's kind saying. of the substance of mm-hmm. his concern. Now, what what this, what this Stephen Wolf does when he writes in is he says, hey, I wonder if it's actually what's going on is there are people in the church who elite, non-Christian elites are in their relational circle. Non-elite Christians are not in their relational circle. So, like, there are just people who, you know, think about your highly educated people who run in kind of elite circles. They probably tend to be surrounded by a lot of people who have a similar educational background, but who don't share their faith in Christ. Like I would say many of my non-Christian friends, I would call them elite type non-Christians. They're not like run of the mill people. They're people who have master's degrees, who are highly educated, who are highly progressive, who think real deeply, who like to argue and debate and who are very thoughtful people. And when I think about like, who are the non-Christians I want to engage with? Well, there's, I want to do that in a certain kind of way because of who my friends are. Um, I don't have a ton of friends who are like, well, I do, but not many, who are like gun-toting, Trump-loving, bumper-sticker-having evangelicals. You know, it's just, I don't run with as many of those people as I do sort of the crusty, elite non-Christians. And so Stephen Wolf is asking, hey, maybe what's going on here is not that they're, they're trying one apologetic strategy over another. Maybe they're just writing to their friends. Right. And their friends happen to be non-Christians who have... Um, you know, a pretty diverse view of the world. And they actually don't have as many people in their circles who are uh, the kind of people that David French would kind of critique. And he, um, Stephen Wolf quotes this line from Colin Hansen. In May 2021, Colin Hansen, an editor of the Gospel Coalition, in a podcast on Christian nationalism, opened the episode with, I don't know anyone who self-identifies as a Christian nationalist and then proceeded to discuss with two guests the heresy of Christian nationalism. So he's like saying, I don't know anybody who has this, but this is a terrible view and it's heresy. And Stephen Wolf is just saying, well, maybe you should have some friends who have that view and then you could critique it in a way that would take take them into account. And so that's an interesting view. The other letter is from um, Miles Smith, a professor at Hillsdale College. And he says, you know what evangelicals haven't learned is how to be a self-conscious minority. And Miles Smith says, there are traditions in Protestantism like Lutherans and Anglicans who have learned that. Like, we just know how to be, like what he's saying is, yeah, the Benedict Doctrine is kind of what we've had to do. Like, we're just a self-conscious minority. It's not like withdrawal from the world. It's just, hey, we are who we are, and we realize that we're a small minority. Evangelicals, broadly speaking, seem to still have this sense that like, if we just work hard enough, we can take back the culture for Jesus. And we haven't learned how to be just a faithful, self-conscious minority. And I think that's an interesting play because um, what he's saying is uh, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, old school Presbyterians that have succeeded as intellectually confident, self-conscious minorities, uh, that those people have something to teach the sort of 
broadly evangelical swath of people in America. Which How are Catholics minority, though? Well, they are, culturally they, speaking. They are in general, maybe not, not in Omaha, Nebraska. Not here in the Midwest. Not, not numbers, right? Yeah, but, but I mean, there was no, idea. there was not a single Catholic president of the United States until John F. Kennedy. That's I mean, true. Think about it. That's true. Catholics have always been, I mean. But how many are on the Supreme Court? Yes. I, I mean, I, they've had a resurgence in the last 50 years. But I mean, I, I think his point is, yeah, Roman Catholics have always been a persecuted minority in America until very recently. Same with Lutherans. Um, same with, you know, old school Presbyterians, Anglicans. There are some traditions in our in our stream that have just figured out how to be sort of that, um, you know, what the Jewish community has always been, which is just sort of a very comfortable, yeah. self-confident minority, you know, that just doesn't, you know, they're not trying to like win over the entire world to their way of thinking tomorrow because they're just happy being who they are and sort of occupying the space they do in the culture. And um, I think that's an interesting observation. I wonder what that suggests about, I, I guess what I'm saying is this whole article for me has interesting applications to mission because it makes us ask the question, is our missional strategy faithful presence over time or should our missional strategy be a little bit more of self-conscious minority community? You know, it's just like, Hey, we're, I'm not trying to win over my, everybody on my street or all my neighbors. So my view of the world, I'm just trying to be a self-conscious minority. I don't know if those two things are necessarily different. Yeah. That's okay. my, that was my question. Yeah. yeah. Go. Yeah. I yeah. thought you were going to say like, get aggressive. Or something like that. Go. Well, because one of the things, when I remember reading Hunter's book, that was still to this day is like one of the biggest takeaways that I just like, whoa, is when he gets to this, he makes this point of changing culture to think we can change culture in a lot of ways is to say we can control history and that's mm. in the hands of so a sovereign God. So if you even look at sort of the ebb and flow of the United States and where we are, and then compare that in like different other, you know, moments in history. I mean, you think, okay, the early church had a particular strategy that I wouldn't say is what evangelicals have about how they live in the culture. Maybe more of, hey, we're okay being a minority. And what, what ended up happening to Europe, what ended up happening to that old Roman empire it became Christianized. Was that because they adopted faithful presence or, you know, these various cultural strategies that we now think about when we engage culture or was what they did and the Lord just sort of used that and that, that was more about God's sovereign working in history than it is necessarily about uh, a particular strategy. So I guess my point is this in the sense that if we look at various, like just kind of where we are in various cultural moments, I think, yes, that does in some ways dictate kind of how we relate to the culture because it, it sort of dictates, you know, where the doors that are going to open or the nature of the conversation but in some ways, faithful presence is just something we should be doing whether the door's wide open and we have lots of opportunities to influence things and there's a big green light or whether it's little. Like, we should still want to be present with people. We should want to be sharing the gospel. We should want to engage in the level of ideas. We should want to share about why biblical morality matters. We should still be wanting to catechize and raise up our kids and build godly institutions and hopefully that helps society. So... I get that um, in some ways things are different culturally, but as our has our fundamental way of approaching this really doesn't need to change. No, it does. Mm. How, how does... It just came to fight. It does, Chris. How does faithful presence change? I, I mean, so, how does that change? Yeah, what's interesting, I don't know that it... I think it does change, but I think what's interesting is I, I actually think this whole article maybe is just a 
an open critique on the question of what is faithful presence. Because to your point, I think when James Davison Hunter wrote his book, which I think was 2010, so first Obama presidency, I think, I think the world was much more, at that time, it felt like faithful presence was much more of a missionary, let's, yeah. let's, tra- yeah. let's transform the culture kind of a strategy. And culture was charitable. Right. Still. I think yeah. now it is a very different cultural moment. Yeah. So the question of like, what does faithful presence mean, I think is the question. And these authors are raising, I think, an interesting critique, which is to say, are, we, are some evangelical Christians still operating with a vision of faithful presence that, bas- that basically means if we just write enough for the New York Times and you know get enough followers on Twitter and are charitable enough and amenable enough and sort of intellectual enough that we can sort of further gospel work in the world— versus a view of faithful presence just says, eh, just be in Babylon and, you know, catechize your kids, worship Jesus, be who you are. Be a it, pilgrim. Yeah, it's it's really more that, again, to use those two categories of Christ transforming culture versus just sort of Christ against culture, not in a, yeah, not in a combative way, but just in a... But wasn't that, I mean, I, and I agree with you, I'm agreeing with you, but isn't that what, isn't that what Hunter was pointing out, though, is that those those changes or the influence that we have in culture in some ways is outside of our control. Yes. Because he, so. he was pushing against this whole idea of po- grab for power, grab for power, yeah, grab for he power. Yeah, he critiqued power a lot, but I think the, the alternative vision he proposed was sort of if you'll just be faithfully present, you'll, you'll gain influence. You will have influence. And I think maybe the thing Truman is asking is what if you don't have influence? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean if, you, yeah, if, you, if you read it that way, if that's kind of the, the takeaway, that, that's a good, I think, correction in the sense of you, not necessarily you will have influence. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And that's in some ways in the hand of God's providence. Because, again, use the, use the example of first century church or first through yeah, yeah. first and second. Let me, uh, at the risk of being super intellectual, let me read a line from Miles Smith's letter that I thought was really powerful. He says, if there is an in evangelical intellectual tradition— it seems to have been largely wedded to a broad affirmation of the post-Protestant neoliberal American order. That, I think, names what I'm feeling, which is, I think we've embraced this idea of faithful presence in a post-Enlightenment neoliberal American way of thinking, which is like, man, if you just be faithfully present at your job or in your school or wherever for decades, then you'll have influence and, you know, people will respect you and, and want to hear what you have to say. And um, I wonder if, like, what Truman is doing, what, what's happening right now is sort of a critique of, like, yeah, is liberalism even the right way of thinking about humanity, you know? And, and that's where this opens up some interesting questions to me of just, like, yeah, faithful presence is less about if I'm just here long enough and faithful, I'll win credibility. With What if it means I'm here long enough and, like Daniel— they hate me and try to throw me in the lion's den mm-hmm. and persecute me for trying to pray to Jesus. Then what? Does that still count? Like, do I still see that yeah. as success? Well, it's still yeah. glorifying yeah. to the Lord, right? But I don't think I don't I don't think we would see it as successful mission. I think mm-hmm. we would see it as like, yeah, it's not really you lost. Yeah, you you weren't a very good missionary, and I think these guys are trying to say, what if you were actually a really good missionary? Or how how much do you strategically press particular? Like, if you think I need to get in this position, like. I, you know, hey, writing in the New York Times or writing, you know, having a, a louder or a larger platform or a larger voice, if that's what we think faithful presence is, 
what are we going to do in order to get there? And that's what Truman's like pushing on. So we need to reevaluate even hey, faithful presence. Hey, we need to be willing to let go of some things right. maybe if we're going to be faithful. I mean, well, and I think, look, sorry, let me mention one more thing that I think Truman is um, trying to push back against. I think what he says is to get uh, intellectual credibility, what you do is critique your own tradition. Like that's happening in all the social sciences right now. It's like you have to be a critic of your own heritage. And so he's saying that's what evangelicals are doing too is that's why you see so much critique of evangelical support of Trump is because sort of like what you're supposed to do right now is to say, hey, I can turn around and critique my own tradition. Um, and and I think what Truman is saying is, what if that's just a dumb strategy? Um, because it is leading to more division within the church and more polarization in the culture. And now everybody's critiquing everybody. And is that is that just a losing strategy rather than saying, hey, like this is what's interesting about the Roman Catholic view to me is like Roman Catholics are the most diverse group of people in the world. Like I can find Catholics who are like pro-life, Jesus-loving people, and I can find Catholics who are like blue state, pro-abortion, like, and they're all Catholic. You know, it's just like when it comes down to it, you press on them, they're like, yeah, we're all Catholics. Like they, they fall back on that identity, even though there's tons of diversity, where it seems like evangelicals more and more fragment into these little subgroups that are like, well, we're this kind of evangelical, and we're that kind. And that's what's interesting to me. Protestant's going to Protestant. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> but, but, but I think it's interesting if Truman's saying, hey, what if, our, what if the strategy we're adopting is only furthering that fragmentation? Yeah. But this, this is where the tension for me, though, because I, I, I'm, I'm compelled by part of that because it is, yeah, what would it mean to to have that diversity, but, but held together by something bigger. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but there's also the, I think one of the dangers and one of the things I think that sometimes frustrates me about Carl Truman is <laughs> he like, look, dude, maybe, maybe part of this race conversation is it's gone sideways and, you know, woke and, you know, the, whatever you think about CRT, let's just for the sake of argument, say that that's terrible. But what if this is also a moment where God, God is actually judging the church because the church in the United States really does have this problem with racism that it's had from the beginning. And and as you see this in the Bible, God will use the world to judge his people. And, and if that's also happening, we need a, a humility to be able to reflect and critique our own tradition and our own yeah. our own culture. And, and not allow the world to set, and, and, and it, it's a mess, it's messy, and there's a tension there. So what, what I think Truman is onto, though, is it has to be broader. Like, yeah, race is one of those things that will get you a seat at the table, but if you start talking about gender and sexual ethics, then boy, you'll get booted out quickly. And so when, let's have that conversation about race. Let's be willing to critique ourselves where we need, but let's also have the, the boldness, prophetic boldness, to go where scripture leads in all areas. So... This is where I think the tension where he's onto something, but I'm also like, man, if you take that too far, you're going to actually end up in some ways circling the wagons and not allow yourself to, to be open to, I think in some ways the way God is clean in house. So hmm. just I like a thought that. too. I like that. I'm completely fine being a pilgrim. Praise the Lord. I don't want to be a Benedict you look like guy. A, you kind of look like a pilgrim. Mike's got the hat. I don't want to be a Benedict option guy, but, and I don't want to be an elite, which I don't have a problem being because you know, you got to be smart and stuff. But I think, like, as as we're raising kids right now, being a pilgrim is what it feels like yeah. they're walking into. Yes. And it's my job to help them understand, yeah, you're going to have friends that have two dads. Mm -hmm. You're checking out books from the library where there's two moms. 
we need to describe that to you. It's going to feel weird. Like we have a different sexual ethic. Yeah. And it's, you're going to be out of place. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. And I think that's what, again, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Truman's manner or the way he goes about these conversations, but I think that it's interesting to raise these questions because I yeah. do think that the church is trying to find its footing as a missionary people in a, <laughs> in a very post-Christian world. And we're, we're still sort of figuring out what that means. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, having really articulated a faithful presence kind of missionary posture for the first 10 years of Coram Deo, this is a live question for me because I'm just like, man, what Dusty just said is true. Like, you know, if in 2005 we're all about like engaging the culture and like, you know, connecting with the people around you, I still want to connect with them as human beings. But the the engaging part does look different when you have to say, hey, also, there's some places we draw lines where the world around you isn't going to draw lines. There's some some ways we think about ethics, sexuality, uh, holiness, that, man, no one at your school is going to think that way. And so we just have to teach you to be a refreshingly different. And people aren't going to be liberal about it in the sense of, oh, that's fine that's, for you. Yeah. That's fine for me. No, it, now it's you're a bigot. You're right. a terrible yeah. person. Right. It's not going to be a charitable situation. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's to go back to Truman's original point. The case he's making is where Christianity is always going to be divided from is on moral questions. It's not on intellectual questions. So the thing that will get you thrown out of the debate is always you have a moral vision of the world that the world around you doesn't share. And, um, the question of what does it mean to have a faithful missionary posture in a world like that, I think is an open question. It's interesting for Christians to think about what is this going to require of us? I do want to say, as we're wrapping up here, the most refreshing thing about this was just the back and forth. Yeah. The back and forth debate was refreshing. Nobody was getting yelled at or canceled or anything. It was just like, oh, look at that. Yeah. Somebody's disagreeing. And then he's like, oh, you make a good point. Yeah. That was refreshing. Well, it's funny because various quote unquote evangelical elites have really not liked what Carl Truman said. You know, they've like, this has been bantered around in my circles for the last two months because people have, it's, it's sort of brought things to the surface and people are going like, well, are you saying I'm a bad person for writing a column in the New York Times? Because I think I'm just trying to do the thing you're saying, Carl Truman. So I, I again, I don't want to like be a critiquer for the sake of critiquing. I think the questions that Truman is raising are important, but I think, yeah. man, I'm thankful for anyone who wants to, in the public square, put forward a case for anything that's good and true and right and beautiful. Um, and I'm thankful that, that Christians have not abandoned that public square and said, yeah, that doesn't matter. Let's just kind of double down on our vision of the world. Um, I, I want to continue to try to persuade people of the goodness and beauty and truth of uh, the scriptures in whatever venue that requires. Hey, also, Mike Kresnick is shifting roles at Quorum Deo and therefore shifting roles on the Wednesday Conversation podcast. Mike, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so... Um for the last five years, I've been functioning at Quorum Deo as the uh, director of worship and liturgy and creative media. And over the last five years, um, God's brought some really brilliant people that I get to work with. One of those is Bethany. Like, for instance, Bethany Gilbert. Um, and uh, Olivia and Micah, my my fellow uh, partners in crime when it comes to leading our church in worship. Um, and over the next, well, not over the next month, uh, now I'm, I'm handing those things off to those people respectively. And so, um, I'll, I'll still, um, be around doing, um, some production stuff, but mainly I'll be working with Dusty. Yeah, our, let's go. In our pastoral care department. Um, and so 
I'm looking forward to taking a break from the podcast, jumping in if I have to, if Bethany's out of town or something, but um, diving into the uh, the life of the people of Cormdale. So um, you won't hear Mike's voice on the podcast quite as much. You will now become more like Wednesday conversation adjacent. Right. You'll be you'll be around here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just not on this podcast quite as much. Right. And right. we'll miss you. Thanks for yeah. thanks for your leadership on this podcast for the last seven years. Man. Really? 2013, 2014? Yeah. 2014. What, 2014, yeah. yeah. We yeah. like hold up in a closet yeah, we at did. the beginning. At our old office, yeah. yeah. It was amazing. It was a little tight in there. With blankets and old microphones. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Bethany, really thankful that God has raised you up and brought you along and that we can, you know, have you step in and take over some of the work that Mike's done so well for the last seven years. So thanks for leading in the ways God's gifted you to lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big shoes to fill, but I'll try my best. You're going to do great. I think it's like a size nine or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're fine. Give me at least a 10. At least a 10. the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission so if you're a christian or a church leader in another context we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context we love to hear from listeners so if you have thoughts questions or future podcast topics or snacks send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for another episode of the wednesday conversation